Well, good morning, Sayreville Church. How are you guys doing this morning? Good? Open your Bibles up, if you have them, to John chapter 11. And we're going to continue on in our series uh, titled The Life of Christ. Um, some of you, a lot of you know me, but many of you don't. Uh, I became a Christian when I was 18 years old, and I was working at a warehouse, driving a forklift around, and uh, if you're a Christian, you'll know what I'm about to talk about. I, I grew up hearing all of these Bible stories my entire life, but then once I was saved and I actually had the Holy Spirit living inside me, those stories started to come to light in a whole new way, right? Uh, and I even remember I would, I would spend like the first 20, 25 minutes of my day at, at, in the warehouse in the bathroom just reading my Bible. So, Not quite sure if that's right or wrong, but uh, I won't tell my boss. Uh, it, the, but I did one thing. I, I downloaded scripture on my phone, and one book in particular was the book of Exodus, and it was a dramatized reading of the book of Exodus. Uh, uh, you, ever, you ever heard something like that where you got voices, you know, Moses' voice is over here, uh, uh, Aaron's voice, you got, you got background noise, you got chatter going on. It's really something cool, and it's horribly distracting while you're driving a forklift, uh, but I was loving my Bible, right? I'm actually looking at Nate back there. He was my boss, Nate Worsham, our deacon. So I, <laughs> I forgot about that, Nate. <laughs> uh, but I was loving my Bible. I was loving it. Uh, but there was one story in particular in the book of Exodus uh, that almost every single time would either make me cry or just make me just stand still in absolute awe. And it was Exodus 19, where all of the Israelites were at the foot of Mount Sinai. And the, the presence and the glory of God starts to descend on top of the mountain. And there's this amazing picture going on. I always had this picture in my head like this while I'm listening to it and just awe. And let me just read a couple of these verses for you and just Think about being there at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went down like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on the mountain to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, could you imagine being Moses? Could you imagine walking up that mountain? And, and as I was driving around in my forklift, I would so often just think, it was this picture in my head, and I would go, how unbelievably life-changing would it be to catch a glimpse of the glory of God like Moses? Wouldn't that be amazing? And every time you see someone in Scripture catch a glimpse of the glory of God, their lives dramatically change. Right? Isaiah in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Paul on the road to Damascus, they come into contact with God and their lives absolutely change. Well, believe it or not, in this text, in John chapter 11, Jesus flat out tells us, watch this, if you're paying attention, you will experience 
the same thing. Do you believe that? If you're paying attention, you will catch a glimpse of the glory of God. And what you see will dramatically change your life. I don't care if, you're, if you've been a Christian for 70 years or you're someone who would say, I'm not even a Christian right now. If you catch a glimpse of the glory of God and you're paying attention to this text, you will be changed forever. And I don't know about you, but I really want to catch a glimpse of the glory of God. Right? I, I want to be changed by God. I'm a Christian for crying out loud, or at least I, I should be if I'm up here, right? I, I want to see God. I want to experience him. And so let's, let's go to John chapter 11 and, and see what Jesus is really talking about. And this is a famous story, arguably one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. Uh, it's, it's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Uh, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't read it. Uh, but it's been around for 2,000 years, so it's on you at this point. Um, but what's happening in this story is Jesus' good friend Lazarus dies. Uh, and Jesus actually gives us a little bit of a spoiler alert himself uh, as to what he's going to accomplish throughout this chapter, at the end of this chapter, rather. And, and if, so if you have it in front of you, just look at verse 4. He says talking to his disciples now. He says, this illness does not lead to death. Well, it did lead to death. Lazarus did die. So, so clearly, Jesus is foreshadowing something that he's about to do, and this is what he's saying. It, it doesn't lead to death. This is what it leads to. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified. The entire point of this event, of this text in John 11, is to reveal the glory of God. And so let's pay attention to it. Let's, let's focus in on it. And let's jump to verse 17. And let's read the guts of this chapter, starting in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been dead in the tomb four days. There's a lot of providential things going on here that we just don't have time to dig into all of them. But essentially, the reason why Jesus showed up purposely four days late is because he wanted everyone to know Lazarus is really, 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 really dead. He's really dead. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, and you can hear the hurt in Martha's voice and maybe even the anger. We didn't read it, but in verse 6, we're told that Jesus purposely stayed back two days. Could you imagine being Martha and hearing about that? Like, Jesus, this is your good buddy. You, you loved us. This is the one whom you love, and you purposely stayed back two days? And so she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She didn't get what he's talking about. It went right over her head. 
she thought he was talking about end times. And, and Jesus looks at her in the eyes, and, and maybe even the, the tears started to well up in Jesus' eyes, and he looked at her, and he said, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? As tears probably started to well up in, in Martha's eyes, she, she said to him, Yes, Lord, yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Verse 28. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Jump to verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, again, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, here, come and see. And then we get in verse 35, a verse that Charles Spurgeon says, you cannot just read it, you must feel it. Verse 35, Jesus wept. The one who created all things and in whom all things hold together, weeping. And so the Jews watching said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? A reference back to John 9. And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And then Jesus says this to her, and I want you to look at verse 40, because this is the entire point of the message. It's the entire point of the story of Lazarus. Verse 40, Jesus said to Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And the same is true for every single one of us in here today. So they, looked, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. It is an amazing story. <clears throat> now, I have four kids. Uh, they're wild. Um, and uh, they have some annoying habits. Uh, I love them, but they, they can be, yeah. They got this one thing that they do, though. They, they, they have a habit of watching and re-watching only their favorite part of the movie. Any parents know what I'm talking about there? They just rewind, rewind, rewind. And so, I, like, I know that Bruno song by heart. My kids just, like, I get it. I won't mention him. They just keep on over and over again. Well, in a story like Lazarus, we have a tendency to do the same thing. 
right? We want to make a beeline, right, for Lazarus. We want to just focus on the climax, and for right reason, right? I mean, we, it's, it's, it's the climax of the story. But if we do that, we will miss glimpses of the glory that God is going to show us through the other characters in the story, through, through Mary and Martha. And interestingly enough, they take up the majority of the story. So maybe Jesus really wants us to pay attention to them. And so before we get to Lazarus, we will get to him, but before we do, I want to look at Martha and then Mary. I want to see how did Jesus reveal his glory to us through his interaction with first Martha. And he did it by proclaiming his power to her. He's proclaiming his power to her because Martha was a really interesting character. She had a legitimate yet limited faith. It was legitimate. She really did believe Jesus is who he says he is. She really did believe that Jesus was the Son of God. She even said that in verse 27. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. Really easy for us to beat up on people like this when we see him in Scripture, right? Like, ah, oh, where's your faith at? But seriously, don't, don't just brush by that so quickly. She had a legitimate faith. She really did believe Jesus is who he says he is, yet what she believes Jesus is capable of doing was limited. It was limited. Every, every exchange that they were having was just going right over her head. She didn't comprehend what Jesus was trying to explain to her. And then, of course, in verse 39, she's the first one to say, hey, when Jesus says, roll away the stone, she goes, hey, in the old King James, it's going to stinketh, right? He's dead in there. He's dead. He's decaying. He's going to smell Jesus. Don't do that. What Martha needed was to catch a glimpse of the glory of who Jesus was, of who he really was. And because Jesus is God and he knows all things, he knew that this is exactly what Martha needed to see. And so he goes on to make one of the most remarkable statements you'll ever find in Scripture. It's the fifth of the seven I am statements. And he looks at her in verse 25 and says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He's trying to get Martha to see something about himself, to see the glory of who he is. Because up to this point, Martha's saying, yes, Lord, yes, because of my legitimate faith, I genuinely believe that Lazarus will be rose from the dead He will rise from the dead in the future. He will be raised from the dead by the power of God in the future. But Jesus was trying to get her to see. He desperately wanted her to see, Martha, don't you understand? I am the power of God. I am the great I am. I am capable of doing the unthinkable, Martha. Don't you see that? Do you see me for who I am? Are your eyes open to it? And again, it's really easy for us to beat up on, on people like this when we, when we see them and read about them. But in all honesty, we modern-day Christians are a lot like Martha. We're so much like Martha. Oh, we have a legitimate faith, right? If you're a Christian, there are many Christians in this room with legitimate faith, If I asked you to explain the gospel, you'd be able to explain the gospel, take me to verses, talk about events in the Bible, show me what they are, and go line by line for 
how to explain them. You have a legitimate faith, but yet you have a limited faith in what you believe God is actually capable of doing. We talk about things like, like revival here and saying, oh, oh I, I, I believe that God could do a revival here or, or overcoming, overcoming addiction or, or life-dominating sins or, or, or seeing marriages healed. And we say, yes, I know, I have head knowledge, I know and I have faith that this could happen, but I'm not sure we actually believe it could happen. Right? And so what Jesus wanted Martha to understand and what he wants us to understand that if our eyes were just opened to see Jesus for who he is, then we wouldn't doubt what he's capable of doing. A.W. Tozer said, we often try to put God in a box, but the God who fits in our boxes isn't the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's a question for every Christian in this room. Ask yourself this question. What do you think you're missing out on because of your limited view of the power of God? What do you think you're missing out on because of your limited view of the power of God? I don't know about you, but I desperately want to experience the glory of God's power while I'm here on earth. Right? We're singing that last song, and I was amazed at thinking, there will be a day where, where faith will be sight and I'll be able to see God for who he is and I can't wait for that day, but I also want to experience that now. I want to experience the power of God now. It was Jim Simbola who said, one of my greatest fears is to preach about the power of God my entire life without ever experiencing it. If you want to experience the glory of God's power, you must see the Lord for who he is and believe he is capable of doing the unthinkable. Because he is. And it starts in your heart. A revival of a church or a town or a city starts in your individual heart being revived, confessing sin, pleading with the Lord to do something do something great, and he can, because he is the great I am, amen? He is the resurrection and the life, amen? He is the power of God. That's Martha. Let's, let's look at Mary now. Mary, I love Mary in this story. She, she, it was, she was precious to think about, and Jesus revealed his glory to Mary by pastoring her heart. Mary, I tried to point it out um, at the beginning in verse 20, Mary was hurting. Mary was really hurting. See, see, Martha went as soon as she heard Jesus was coming. She went. But in verse 20, we see that Mary stayed at the house. She was seated at the house. And then in verse 32, we see a statement by Mary that looks almost exactly like Martha's. She says, my brother wouldn't have died if you had been here, Lord. But the word that Mary uses for died actually has a prefix in the Greek, making it a more intense word than Martha used. So, so Martha says, hey, my brother's dead. Mary's saying, my brother is beyond helping. I am so hurt. I am, I am in such despair right now that you're late and there's nothing that can be done, Jesus. And so Jesus, the pastor, 
Jesus, the great pastor, starts to go to work on Mary's heart. And this is super precious. And what it, when we first see it in verse 30, when, and we didn't read verse 30, but if you do, you'll see that after Jesus is talking with Martha, Martha goes and gets Mary, and Jesus stays where he's at, where he was. And so a logical question is asked, well, why? Why didn't Jesus go with Martha to go get Mary? He could have gone with Martha to go get Mary, but he didn't. He stayed where he was at. And I think one of the many reasons he was doing is because he wanted Mary to hear his call. We see that in verse 20. Martha whispers into Mary's ear, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. Now, as a kid, I remember getting lost in the grocery store. If we get lost in the grocery store, immediately all hope is lost, right? I'm never going to see my parents again, probably going to get kidnapped, and you can't, it's just worst case scenario. But then I hear in the next aisle over the very loud voice of my father. <laughs> and it is music to my ears, and I quickly light up and I run towards my father. And I think this is what's happening with Mary. Mary needed to be reminded of the sweet, loving call of her Lord. Jesus would say just a chapter earlier, another great I am statement in John 10, he would say, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and follow me. And that's what Mary did. As soon as she heard the call of Jesus, she got up quickly, and when she saw him, she fell at his feet in pain, yes, but in worship. She was worshiping at the feet of Jesus in agony. And interestingly enough, this is always where we find Mary in the Gospels. She's always at the feet of Jesus, and that should tell us something. Because maybe you're here today, and you would say, you know, I, I already believe in a God that is powerful and able and capable of doing great and mighty things, but today, maybe you just need to catch a glimpse of the glory of the Lord's gentle and lowly and shepherding heart for you. He loves you. You know, I'm not going out on a limb here by saying that there are some of you in this room that are just really, really hurting. You're going through all sorts of things. Your marriage is on the rocks. You're about to get divorced. Your kids are running away. They hate you. You have a loved one who's sick and is about to die, and you're like Mary in this story. You're going, all hope seems to be lost, but what we see in the story of Mary is that we can't sit down in despair. We must fall down in desperation. Mary, when we first see her in verse 20, she was just sitting down in despair. All is lost. I can't do anything about this. But what Jesus knew she needed to hear, and what Jesus knows that some of you need to hear, is the gentle and lowly call of your Lord, and quickly run to the truth that Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the good pastor, and he is always, every single time, being intentional with your hurt and with your pain. He's always, even if you don't know what's going on, even if you can't quite see the end of the chapter that's being written about your life, right? Mary didn't, she wasn't able to read the end of chapter 11. It hadn't been written yet, right? She didn't know what was going to happen. And in almost always, in every case that, that we go through, most of the time, 
we don't get to read the end, or end of our chapter of hurt, do we? We don't get to experience that. But what we can do is we can fall down like Mary at the feet of our Lord and trust that this is a good God who is on the throne and he is still writing your story even if you don't see what he's writing, right? Amen? This is the glory of our Lord. This is who our God is, the one who created all things and in whom all things work together. He sympathizes with your hurt. He sympathizes with your pain. He didn't stay distant from your pain. He embodied your pain when he came to earth. And then as verse 35 says, he weeps with you. The God of the universe wept with Martha and Mary. And he does. He, he, he weeps with you in your pain. Do you see his glory? Do you see the glory of the good shepherd? Well, let's go to the climax and it's Lazarus. Um, and Jesus reveals his glory to Lazarus by proving his power. So he was proclaiming his power, and now we get to the part of the story where he's about to show him. He was saying earlier, I am this, I'm capable of doing this, and now he's going to say, now I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you by raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, I don't know what you know about pastors, but we all love a good illustration, right? I mean, we love illustrations. If you hang around pastors enough and you do something stupid, you'll probably end up being an illustration. That's just how we think. It's like a disorder. We just can't get it out of our heads. We always are thinking illustrations. But Jesus, when he stood at the entrance of the tomb of Lazarus and called out to him, Lazarus, get up, and Lazarus was raised from the dead. This is the clearest illustration in all of Scripture of what has to happen to anyone who wants eternal life. Just the other day, earlier this week even, I was uh, on a plane from Pennsylvania to Chicago, about two and a half hours, sat next to this Lithuanian guy um, named Paul, and uh, we started talking, and from before the time we took off to the time we were walking out, uh, we were having a gospel conversation. It was amazing. But in the midst of going back and forth, and he's asking me questions, and he's wrestling through some things, I'm explaining to him. I go, Paul, Paul, don't you see that, that in order for you to have eternal life, you yourself must be perfect, right? Because God is perfect. God is holy. And there is no way, there's no possible way for any small amount of corruption to enter into the presence of a holy God. So you have to be perfect. And so he's thinking about this. He's mulling it all over. And he goes, okay, John, uh, so you're telling me that Christians, they, their whole goal is to be perfect like Jesus was so that they can get to heaven. So give me an example. Give me an example of someone who's become perfect, John. Because if, you're, if you were to tell me that, that I needed to be more like Elon Musk, let's say, uh, then I would be able to tell you certain things that I need to do in order to become more like Elon Musk. So give me an example of someone who's done that in Christianity. I said, Paul, let me ask you a question. What are you capable of doing to become more like Elon Musk if you're dead? He looks at me and he goes, if I'm If I'm dead? Oh, yeah, yeah. If you're dead, what can you do to become more like Elon Musk? And he goes, well, I guess I can't do anything. And I go, 
Paul, that is exactly right. Ephesians 2.1 says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Every single one of us in this room, at least at one point, and some of you are still dead in your sins, but every single one of us was an illustration of Lazarus in the tomb. We are dead in our sins, and there is nothing we can do in our own strength to make ourselves alive. There is nothing that can be done by our own power to be raised to life. Not unless a miracle occurs. Not unless the Son of God stands at the tomb of your life and says, John Nemers, rise from the dead. Get up. Come forward. And this is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus himself said this in John chapter 5, 25. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. If you're a Christian here today, that has what, that's what's happened in your life. And if you're not a Christian here today, that's what needs to happen in your life. Jesus was putting on display the glory of his resurrection power when he rose Lazarus from the dead. And so the big question here this morning is how will you respond to his glory? How will you respond to his glory? Because I don't doubt it, there are a lot of Christians in this room today, and you would say, I have been raised to life, but the question for you is, are you living like it? Are you living like it? You know, it's really interesting, Lazarus, and his new life became such a witness to the world around him that they tried to kill him for it, if you keep on reading this chapter. you imagine that, being Lazarus? Oh, I've just been raised to life. I'm alive now, and now everybody wants to kill me. That'd be, that'd be awful. But Christian, ask yourself the question, is your new life marked by that kind of witness? Catch this. If you're a Christian... You've been raised from the dead so that you can tell this message to the dead. And God wants you to take part in his miracle. He wants you to be a part of this. And, and it's actually right in our story. I don't know if you caught it or not. Verse 39, how did, the, how did the stone get rolled away from the tomb? Did Jesus roll away the stone? No. He said, you and you and you and you. Roll away the stone. Because God loves to use human agency to make way for his miracle. God's the only one who can raise the dead, but he loves to use you, Christian. He says that you are ambassadors for God. God using you as a mouthpiece to speak his message to those who are dead. And then what about after Lazarus rose from the dead? The stone was rolled away. God makes Lazarus rise from the dead because only God can save someone. And then Lazarus comes out and did, did Jesus say, hey, bandages drop? He could have. But he said, you and you and you unwrap him and let him go. This is the call of every single Christian here. Every single Christian, make way for the miracle by rolling the tomb out, 
of people's lives, telling them about the gospel, allowing God to do the miracle of saving them, and then you walk with them in newness of life. You help them in their newness of life. This is the call of every single Christian. And I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of God's miracles. That sounds amazing to me. And I want to be a part of God's miracles. So Christian, how are you doing? Are you living like it? And finally, there are some of you here who you're still Lazarus in the tomb. You're, you're dead in your sins And so the question for you is, do you hear the voice of Jesus calling your name? It's interesting. Three times in the Gospels we're told of Jesus raising the dead. And he never touched them. It wasn't his voice. It was his call. He called them. So for those of you who have any sort of Doubt as to whether you may have eternal life. Ask yourself the question, right now, do you hear the sweet sound of the Savior's voice calling your name? And for those of you who may be thinking through this right now, I just want to jump back to verse 25 and 26. Read these with me. And instead of using Martha's name, put your name there. So verse 25 says, Jesus said to you, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? When you see the glory and believe in the glory of the cross and what Jesus was accomplishing in his death and his burial and his resurrection for you, you will be given eternal life and when you die, you will not die. That's what Jesus is saying here. Like Psalm 23, 4 says, though I walk through the valley of the what? The shadows of death. If you accept this message or if you have accepted this message, The shadows of death are just momentary gateways to eternal life. That's the call of every Christian. Let's pray. Lord, you are the great I am. Father, you are the one who does miracles every single day in people's hearts by raising them from the dead. Father, there are dead in this room. They smell like Lazarus. Lord, I pray, I plead with you that you would open their eyes, help them to see your glory, and be changed forever. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.